Our Father, we thank you that we can bring before you the needs of this day. We're so thankful for the opportunity we have once a week to worship together in your house and to fellowship together, and that fellowship is, is delightful. And we're grateful, Lord, that we have the common bond of the Spirit of God who indwells each of us as believers. And now, Father, we pray for your special blessing. We ask that your Spirit will be active in each of the Sunday School classes this morning. We're thankful for all of those who have committed themselves and their time and their strength to teach classes all the way from the nursery uh, children all the way to the senior citizens. And we ask that you will bless each class, each teacher, each person. We pray for the service, which is transpiring right now, too, that that will be a special time for each one. Now, guide us in our study this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we are not dependent upon our own abilities or strength to understand the word, but your spirit enlightens our hearts that we might understand in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like for us to begin this morning by reading in the ninth chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 13. Ninth chapter of Exodus, beginning at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, and your servants, and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh, who feared the word of the Lord, made his servants and livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Last week, I think I attempted to make the point that as we move from the first six plagues, one through six that we've already studied, into the seventh plague, there's kind of a quantum leap in intensity here. The first six plagues have been troublesome. The first six plagues have caused economic uh, problems. The first six plagues have been uncomfortable, but now we're moving to a plague that is actually going to cost human life. There's, there's no statement in any of the early six, first six plagues that anyone necessarily died as a result of those plagues, but now death is going to come. In verse 14 of this passage that we read, one of the things I pointed out last week was that God warned Pharaoh that the floodgates were about to be opened. God was going to send all his plagues on Egypt, meaning plagues of great intensity, culminating, of course, with the plague that would take the firstborn of all Egypt. Just in case Pharaoh 
had thought that God had done his worst. We've weathered the worst of the storm. It can't do anything but get better now. God warned him that had he not restrained the plagues that have happened so far, had God not held them back, that he and all of Egypt would have been destroyed long before now. Putting ourselves in the place of Pharaoh, in thought, of course, only, we would have to understand that living as he did under the influence of the pantheon of Greek, uh, that is, of Egyptian gods, he had a sense that the gods could only do so much and that was the end of it. They couldn't go beyond a certain point because some other god would step in to counteract what the other god was doing and, and each god only had a certain area of authority. This one controlled the river and this one controlled the storm and this one controlled you know, the frogs or whatever. But the God of Israel is demonstrating that he controls everything, that he controls it all, and that there is no limit to his power and no limit to his authority. So God is warning Pharaoh here that you haven't seen how far it can go yet, but you will soon. God further elaborates in verse 16, which is an extension of verse 14, in which he says to Pharaoh and to Egypt that they have survived because God has a greater purpose, a greater purpose in what he is doing than simply destroying Egypt or creating a difficult situation or simply causing Pharaoh to release Israel. God's greater purpose is demonstrating his power and his glory worldwide. Worldwide. Now what was Pharaoh's concept of the world? Pharaoh's concept of the world would have been very different from our concept of the world. As far as he knew, the world was just the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, there was no concept of you know, the greater world that, that we know. The earliest maps that uh, show up that indicate any significant part of the world or attempts to make globes or world maps really don't show anything besides uh, Europe, and that's a truncated thing, and Asia, and that's pulled way over from where Asia is, and only about half of Africa. And surrounding that is a world ocean, and th these are the maps made by the ancient Greeks. And they pushed much further than the uh, ancient Egyptians, because it was a thousand years later when such maps were made. So the question that we could ask at this time is did these terrible judgments upon Egypt truly witness to the glory of God worldwide? Well, I think the answer is clearly yes. First of all, let's go back to that day. In, in the day of Moses in Egypt, there, there was international communication. There were travelers who went from country to country. There were ambassadors who went back and forth. There were merchants who sold goods here and then carried them over to there. And so there were travelers moving back forth between these countries. And certainly there were foreigners in Egypt when all these disasters came who then took the word of those disasters back to their homeland. And so we have, at least in the eastern Mediterranean world, the spread of the truth of the judgment of God upon the nation of Egypt. When Israel left Egypt and moved on to Canaan through the Sinai experience, which we'll be talking about as we move through Moses' life, we're told that the people in Canaan trembled 
when they heard of what God had done in Egypt. Now, how did they hear? Because persons had carried that message between one country and the other. And the word had spread, just like dropping the little rock in the pond and all the little waves radiate out in all directions. So the word had been carried. And they were trembling at the, at the word of how great was the power of the God of Israel. Particularly when you have to understand that Egypt was viewed as the greatest nation in that part of the world at that time. Egypt was the powerhouse. It was the superpower of that day. And if, if such a nation as Egypt was devastated by the God of Israel, what are these puny little countries going to do? You know, what's Edom and Moab and, uh, you know, and, and Bashan and uh, the various little kingdoms inside Canaan going to do in the face of this God? They trembled at the thought of this. And what's interesting is Moses notes this. Later on, uh, we're going to be getting to this passage, but I'd like for us to turn uh, to Exodus chapter 15. This is part of the song of Moses. The song that Moses sang and Israel sang at the time of their deliverance. And in it, God, through Moses, recounts several things. And Moses has this to say about the subject we're talking about at the moment. In verse 14 of chapter 15 of Exodus, the people have heard they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they are motionless as a stone until thy people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom thou hast purchased. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites were all terrorized because, and this is before the children of Israel even approached those lands. They've just gotten across into the Sinai and they're setting out on their journey. And already the terror is striking these people as the word reaches them of the disasters that have come upon the nation of Egypt. Paul makes an interesting statement in Romans. He's, he's developing this treatise on the sovereignty of God. And in the midst of it, he quotes from the passage we've been reading here this morning, uh, Exodus chapter 9. And I'd like to note that in the ninth chapter of Romans, in the ninth chapter of Romans, uh, Paul makes reference directly to this chapter and this event in his statement about the sovereignty of God Almighty. Romans 9, looking at verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, God will say this later on. This is reference to a later event when the golden calf episode occurs. But then it goes on. And then it does not, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul understood what took place in the encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, and the events which surrounded that. This was a demonstration of the sovereign power of Almighty God. Everything begins and ends with God. He is ultimately in control. And this was important for the early believers to know because the early Christians were born and raised in a circumstance that was as pagan as was Egypt in the days of Moses. The Greco-Roman Empire was, was shot through with the worship of many, many gods and goddesses as well as many philosophies, some of which were totally hedonistic and epicurean and had nothing to do with God. In fact, there were some philosophers in Rome who had taught that there was no God. We, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die like a dog and it's all over, so you better live it up now. And, and so it was in the context of that that the church is born. And so for the same reason that Israel needed to know that they worshiped the sovereign God, so the Christians needed to know that they worshiped the same sovereign God. So as the word of God spread, and as it was carried throughout the empire and to our day in which the Word of God has been spread to all the continents and the major nations of the world, we find that the judgments of God upon Israel have become known worldwide, literally known worldwide. We have to understand when God makes a statement, it doesn't always happen immediately. It's like when God said to Adam and Eve, if you sin against me, if you eat of this fruit, you shall die. Well, in terms of physical death, that was postponed for a thousand years nearly. Spiritual death, of course, was immediate, but the physical death part didn't come for a thousand years, or nearly so, after that particular event. So the judgments of God in the day in which they occurred were known in the world that was immediate to Egypt. But eventually, those judgments would known, be known throughout the world as the gospel has been spread to every land. Pharaoh's an, an incredible person. In spite of God's solemn warning and, and this magnificent display of his power, I mean, to have to been totally blind and absolutely reject everything in order to not see the hand of God in the plagues that had occurred already. And yet, Pharaoh exalted himself, the scripture says, in that he would not release Israel. That was a statement of his exaltation against God because he refused to release Israel as God demanded. It's kind of interesting. How far will people go to save face? How far will people go to save face? They will go to the nth degree. They will go to the ultimate point of destruction in many instances in order to attempt to save face. And that's Pharaoh. I mean, he does not want to admit that there is a God, a sovereign God that he must bow to because he is the sovereign, he thinks, over all of Egypt. And he is a deity. And yet to bow humbly before this God just as the slaves bow? Oh, no. He could never stoop that low. And so he is willing to sacrifice virtually everything in order to save face. And so what happens? The seventh plague strikes Egypt. 
The scripture tells us it was a phenomenon the likes of which Egypt had not experienced in the 2,000 years of its history up to that point. A fantastic killer hailstorm. I'd like to read a passage from the 78th Psalm. We read a couple of verses from this in an earlier lesson. But I'd like to turn to the 78th Psalm and read beginning at verse 40. It gives us a little further insight into this event as well as others. Psalm 78 verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. He's talking about Israel, of course. And again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zon, and turned their rivers to blood, their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. And he destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. And he gave over their cattle to the hailstones and their herds to the bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble a band of destroying angels. I think that psalm gives us a little insight into the fact that we're dealing with a supernatural episode here. Whether the term band of destroying uh, angels is kind of a poetic device to talk about uh, the greatness of God's power, or whether he's talking about an actual invisible supernatural force which he used to carry out this, it doesn't really matter which it means. The overall thing is a supernatural event. In the midst of his righteous judgment upon Egypt, as this, as this uh, plague will come, notice, it's so important to notice that even in the midst of this judgment, God exhibits his mercy and his grace. Look again, if you will, in the ninth chapter of Exodus at verse 19. God has said, I'm going to send this horrendous storm. Now, therefore... Send. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Egyptians. Send and bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. But all those brought inside will be protected. God is warning the Egyptians and encouraging them. This is his mercy and this is his grace. God doesn't hate the Egyptians. God is not bringing the plagues on these Egyptians because he has some kind of a delight in destroying these people. God is doing it for the great purpose of achieving his plan for Israel and of glorifying his name throughout the earth. And those who stand in his way and buck up against him pay the price. Not because God enjoys bringing death and destruction. Pharaoh and his people were warned. Move your animals and move your people indoors. Protect them, if you will, from this devastating hail. This was a test. A test for the Egyptians. Do you believe my word? For those Egyptians who believe the word of God, and I think many of them were beginning to believe. I mean, how many times do you have to get hit before you begin to believe? I mean, six times, uh, low now seven. 
And I think whether they understood the God of Israel or not, they certainly believed that when Moses said this is going to happen, it happens. You know, I, I think they began to hold Moses in great esteem and, and certainly in awe. I think when they saw him go by, they were either terror-stricken or something or other. Because this guy brought disaster whenever he spoke. And so those who believed brought their animals in, brought their, their servants in, their children in, got them inside to protect them from the storm. And they lived, at least for this time. The animals lived and the people lived who were brought indoors. But what's so incredible about this is the passage indicates that there were some people who were so hard-nosed they didn't bother. I mean, even after six times, they still say, uh, won't happen or we just won't bow. I think that's it, you know. This, this ramrod me inside, this ego that will not bend, will not submit to the sovereign God. And they would rather die than submit. For us who are believers, we can't understand that. How could someone really will be more willing to die than to submit to the sovereign God? Why would they want to do that? What is there in death that's better than life under God? Nothing. But they're believing what? The lie of the devil. That's what they're believing. They've been so filled with the devil that they think like the devil. And of course, the devil is interested in bringing as many people to destruction as possible. And that is his goal. That's why he is called the destroyer. That's one of his names, the destroyer. Because he does not care whom he destroys. 22nd verse of Exodus 9. Now the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. I, I think that in this particular event, you have probably a clearer picture of the direct connection between God and his prophet, maybe than any other. God said to Moses, go out and lift your staff to the sky, and I will bring this, this great storm, this great hailstorm, upon the land of Egypt. And I think Moses walked outside the palace, and he took his staff, and he lifted it to the sky, and that sky might have been clear blue, but suddenly, almost instantaneously, it turned jet black. As clouds formed so fast that even slow-motion cameras speeded up to normal speed, would uh, be very, very slow compared to what apparently happened here. Immediately, these black clouds formed and a massive thunderstorm broke out all over the land of Egypt. Thunderstorms tend to be localized. Great energy balls that, that strike a given area, but up and down the entire length of the land of Egypt from the Mediterranean Sea to the 
First cataract of the Nile, who knows, maybe even beyond that, a distance of over 700 linear miles. Massive thunderstorm broke out. Now nature can be truly awesome, as you well know, in its fury and its power. Probably all of us have been in thunderstorms that have been kind of frightening. You know. When we were over in uh, Wyoming many, many years ago, we were staying at a, in a cabin and they had a terrible thunderstorm that broke out and it just, you know, it was like a battlefield. Lightning was flashing on all quadrants, all the way around. Thunder was, was tearing through the air and, you know, it was quite an experience. It's kind of exciting, you know, because we weren't afraid of being struck by anything. Uh, maybe we're stupid, but anyway, it, 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 was, it was quite a thing. But I think that would pale before this. This was a supernatural storm. I think the storm went beyond the natural laws of nature here. God's not bound by the laws of nature. God doesn't have to look down and say, well, you know, there's only so much energy in this area. Um, how am I going to do this? You know, so much energy on the other side of the world. Yeah. I mean, God can do what he wants whenever he wants to. And God constantly intervenes into this world and transgresses what we would call the laws of nature, which causes, of course, people who are deistic to sh have shivers running up their, down their spine to think that God would do that. And, of course, they don't believe God does that. But it's, it's quite clear that God has brought his great power to bear. And this storm was unlike that Egypt had ever experienced in its entire history, 2,000 years before this time in which this storm breaks out. These black clouds poured forth gigantic hailstones. Now, I've heard all kinds of stories about hailstones, and you have too. Maybe you've experienced big ones. Now, I've, I've seen hailstones, but nothing like some people claim. You know, tennis ball size and baseball size. I don't doubt that they fall. But I think these were probably bowling ball size, you know. <laughs> these babies were coming down, and they were causing great disaster in the land of Egypt. Pulverizing, just pulverizing the land. It's like facing a shotgun at close range, you know. Only the whole land was being uh, blasted with this. The scripture tells us that fire ran down from heaven. Great bolts of lightning were, were streaking through the sky. I think sheet lightning was ripping everywhere. I mean, we sit there sometimes on our deck at, at home and look out to the east towards Mount Lassen, and sometimes a storm comes through and you see the lightning flashing, the lightning flashing. Oh, that was nothing compared to this. I think the, light, the, the whole night was just lit up with bolts of lightning flashing, so much that the thunder just was constant roar as the lightning flashed there in the land of Egypt. I think with the hail falling, with the intensity it fail, fell, and the lightning flashing, the thunder roaring, it was deafening. Would have been just deafening. I think that if you'd have stood in the, in the midst of the worst battle of World War II, it would have seemed like a Fourth of July celebration in comparison to this. As the forces that God unleashed ripped through the land of Egypt. I think the Egyptians, you know, we, we have this tendency to think only in terms of the material damage. Buildings being dinged and cattle being killed and plants being torn apart. I have to think of the, of the emotional damage. Can you imagine being inside your house and, and this stuff is roaring down from the sky, and the light is, the sky is just alight with lightning, and the roar is continuous. You've never experienced this in your entire life. 
And for these people who are highly superstitious in the first place and knew nothing about the forces of nature anyway, it had to be driving them to the very edge of insanity. They probably were down like saying, if this doesn't stop soon, I'm going to go completely stark raving mad. You know, but something's totally beyond your control. Nothing you can do about it. And it seems to be devastating in the very uh, heavens themselves are ripping apart. These people were terrified. The 24th verse in the passage we read uh, gives us the sense that the lightning flashed continuously. Now, for lightning to flash continuously requires an, a, a supernatural event because in normal cases, lightning between the earth and the ground keeps neutralizing the situation. You know, a flash and, and it neutralizes for a while. Then it flashes over here and it neutralizes for a little while. But for it to be constantly flashing means you've got an imbalance between the clouds and the earth all the time amongst the clouds themselves. And so this, this constant flashing of the lightning was unprecedented and the hail was devastating. The plants and the trees were just beaten to a pulp. Imagine beating the trees to death with this, with this hail. But in the midst of this titanic storm, there's an island of calm. It's called the land of Goshen. If that isn't a picture of what it means to be a believer in the midst of this world, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. You turn the television on and it's just one disaster after the other. You know, earthquake in Sumatra kills 100 and, and Opal rips, rips through Florida and kills 20. And, you know, disaster after disaster is occurring. And, of course, then there's all the vileness of, of mankind on top of it all. And, and you know, it, it's a kind of a spiritual hailstorm that's pouring down on the world. Dr. Lutzer this morning in his message was, on the radio was, was saying that if it were not for the believers, he, he was talking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and that if you know, God would have spared the city of Sodom if there had been only 10 believers. And those 10 believers could have sell, saved thousands of lives. And so he's talking about how few believers influence a large area, a large population. Doesn't take a lot of salt to salt something to make it properly flavored. And we don't know how much God is holding off disaster because of the presence of his people in various places all over the world. I mean, could the earthquakes not be far more disastrous than they are? Now, we, we think of the Osaka earthquake, the Kobe earthquake, and, and how devastating that was. But how much worse could it have been? Far worse. Far worse. It could have killed hundreds of thousands instead of 5,000 or whatever it was. Mexico City, back 20 years ago, it could have killed a much greater number of people. But God's people are there, and God's people are a salt and a light in the world, and, and God holds back because of his people. And I think that's what we see here. They're in, an, they're, they're in this island of calm in the midst of the storm. No hail is falling in Goshen. I don't think any lightning was flashing in Goshen, and the only thunder they heard was coming out of the rest of Egypt. I think they could go out of their house and kind of look around to the horizon and see the dark clouds way over there and see the, you know, the little glimmer of the lightning and hear the distant thunder, but overhead I think their skies were clear. No hail was falling in Goshen. I mean, how much proof do you have to have that you serve the sovereign God? 
I think the fact that you and I are sitting here today as physically fit as we are and as mentally sound as we are because of the preservation of God. If God were to pull his hands back, I don't think we'd survive long because we have our enemy out there who's going light around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I think he'd destroy us as quickly as possible because he doesn't want any light and salt in the world. Look at Job. As soon as God said, okay, instantly Job had all these disasters. I, I think that's a picture of all of our lives. If God were to say, okay, then wham, it would happen. So God has created this island of calm. God has created a little island of calm in you, hopefully. We are an island of tranquility in the midst of a, of a raging storm that's going on in this world. I think the Hebrews stood in awe at the devastation that was happening all around, and yet they were secure. We read about the injustice that's going on in this world today, and yet we know we're secure. And that one day the just God will make it all right. All the injustices of this world will be corrected one day by the sovereign God. God is not going to just say, okay, well, it's all over, forget the whole thing. God's going to call everyone into account for every violation of his law and of the justice of the human race. That's why if the courts fail, I still have that ultimate faith. God will make it right. I think that for the Israelites to stand outside their houses and look around and see this disaster and to know that they were safe had to be an exciting thing. I think the display was, was wonderful, you know. It must have been a sight to behold what was going on. Yes? Um, do you suppose that the people in Goshen, they were always preserved, and so they had crops, they had trees. Do you suppose that maybe they might have tried to share those back with the Egyptians? Probably after. Testimony of God's goodness? Yeah, the scripture doesn't say that, but that would seem to be a natural thing, I would think. And that may be why there still were some animals later on. <laughs> and I had another question. In verse 20, it says, the one among the servants. Is that really one as just one person? No, I don't think so. I think it's a statement of those individuals amongst them who did. I don't think it means a one as in terms of a solitary number, but referring to those who did believe. I think that's what it means. But those are good points to note. Because, you know, you, you could hardly imagine that in all the land of Egypt, only one person, you know, would actually believe after all this. Had to be a few others who were get, beginning to get the point, you'd think, by, by this particular time. I don't know, though, the human race is pretty slow <laughs> at picking up the truth sometimes. Where did the horses come from that pulled the chariots? Are they being spared all this time? Or, or are the Egyptians going to go buy horses to pull the chariots? Or Oh, you mean later when they chase? Yeah. yeah. Or are the owners of the chariots pulled them in right now? <laughs> Maybe they were smart enough to put them inside. <laughs> they are, you know, like, oh, we have today the general versus the president. And the general says, I'm going to keep my military intact. And Could be. It's really hard to tell because there is some indication you know, remember we read earlier that the magicians said even, I mean, these are the chief advisors to the Pharaoh, says, this is the hand of God, or the finger of God, you know, you better pay attention. 
So I, I think there were those around who were a little bit more intelligent, or at least not so hard-nosed as Pharaoh. But, but Egypt, of course, was in the process constantly of trading and of buying weapons and horses and chariots back and forth with other countries. And Scripture even makes reference to that later on in the historical books in the days of Solomon and so forth. So um, I, I think what you're saying, all of that is true. I think some were inside, some were bought new, you know, whatever the case may be. So there were at least enough around to pull the Pharaoh's chariot and a few others to chase after Israel through the Red Sea. What kind of a communication network would they have they could communicate if they're supposed to go inside that 700 mile line within a day? Well, their communication network wouldn't cover the whole country because it would all have to be by runner or by horse. And would the Pharaoh order that such a message be sent? Well, his attitude wouldn't seem to, think, wouldn't seem to indicate that. So I think that what you've got is a situation in which those who heard could do something about it, the rest wouldn't be able to. The, the population of Egypt tended to be concentrated primarily in the, uh, the, in the space between about Memphis and the sea. As you go up the Nile Valley, you had little nodes of population, particularly at Thebes. But the bulk of the population, probably half the population of Egypt at least, lived in the, in the much shorter distance between Memphis and the sea, which could be communicated with in one day. But the rest of it, going clear up to Thebes, there, there wouldn't be any way. Well, I don't know. How fast did the Pony Express carry <laughs> messages across the country? It would have been tough. So you, know, if you think about all these practical little issues, and there really aren't clear answers that you can come up with. You just have to assume that probably some people got it in the neck without knowing it was coming. But, but I think in the, in the case of Israel, we're, what we're doing is we're seeing a confirming of their faith. Remembering these are people who have not had a prophet until Moses came along for two or three hundred years since the death of Joseph. As far as the scripture says, there's no statement in scripture of any such one. So their, their understanding of God had probably weakened during that period of time. And so God is now rebuilding their faith and giving them clear demonstration of his power and his majesty and his authority and that he is one that they ought to follow. And I think that uh, the awe and the thrill that must have filled the Israelites at this time is, is really beyond our comprehension at this point. Sitting here comfortable as we are today in this little room, I, I don't think we can actually sense what they felt when this event occurred in their lives. Well, as best as we can tell, Goshen was in the uh, eastern portion of the west, the eastern portion of the delta of the Nile. In other words, if you, you view the delta of the Nile as a triangle with a point at Memphis is here. Well, I, I handed out a map back in the early part of the class, uh, like so, and the Mediterranean is up here. Um, Goshen would be over on the eastern side of that delta area, over towards the Sinai Peninsula, but actually in, in the actual delta. Geographically, how large an area does There's not really any way of our knowing. Probably we're talking about an area of 1,000, 2,000 square miles. So it's relatively small, you know, in, in, as we think of something like California. But for them, it would have been quite a bit of space. It would have to be a, far, a fairly large amount of territory because when the Israelites finally do leave, 
Egypt. Of course, not all of them necessarily lived in Goshen all the time because they were off working on fortresses and cities and so forth. But they leave two and a half million strong. So you're going to need a little bit of space to house all those people. Even a couple thousand square miles, that's a pretty dense population. May have been a larger area than that. I'd like to read a passage from Isaiah chapter 57, beginning at verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry. For the spirit will grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, create, creating the praise, the praise of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And this has got to be the picture of Israel. There in Goshen, God has reached out to heal them. He has brought shalom to them. And yet the wicked are being destroyed in this monstrous storm all around them. There is no shalom in Egypt for the Egyptians. But only there in Goshen is there the true shalom of God. I guess one of the sad things about that is that that is not necessarily a permanent condition then. Because it doesn't really take very many months before the children of Israel are belly aching and griping and wishing they could go back to that place called Egypt. Because they don't carry the shalom of God with them even through the hard times. God wants us to know peace not only when we're in an island of calm in the midst of a storm, but He wants us to be an island of calm in the midst of the storm, wherever we are. That even though hard things are falling, we are at peace within our spirits. That we're as Job was, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There, there's a, a rock-solid foundation he wants us on there. And if we get to the point where we're just kind of tossed around all the time, like the wicked are portrayed here, and, and we just say, oh God, why are you doing this to me? I can't take it anymore. That's not what God wants. I mean, it's not that we aren't distressed by the trouble that comes our way, but he wants that deep down peace because we're on the rock no matter what may befall. And that's what makes a Christian a true witness in this tumultuous world. This is our God, awesome in power, but also absolutely merciful to them who trust him. We get that picture? This awesome, almighty, all-powerful God, whom C.S. Lewis said is a dangerous person. But he's absolutely merciful to those who trust him. Absolutely full of mercy. And we see this over and, over and again in the case of Pharaoh. 
Now, if you or I had been God, the second time Pharaoh said, stick it in your face, we'd have said, oh yeah? And he'd have been fricasseed. And they'd have had to find a new Pharaoh. But not the God of the universe. He's not intimidated. He, he's not so insecure that if somebody says, oh, I don't think you exist, or you know, calls God a name, that he gets all fr flustered and zaps somebody. He's totally secure. <laughs> no one's going to remove God from his throne. While the Egyptians were cowering in their homes, totally terrorized, wondering if this would ever end, the Hebrews, I think, may have been outside their houses, maybe even celebrating. Not celebrating that these people were necessarily being destroyed, but celebrating God's grace to them. And celebrating the fact that the Egyptian pantheon was being rendered powerless in the face of the God of the slaves. The God of the slaves was victorious over the gods of the slave masters. It's total irony, and yet, certainly, they saw it and they understood it. Well, we don't have time to move on into the 27th verse. We'll do that next week.